So all of you made the effort to come here tonight uh, because we recognize that uh, conventional way of things is, is a somewhat uh, significant occasion. We can, we can make something out of it, and we do generally make something out of it, the ending of a year and the beginning of something new. And a year. So just spending some time to apply attention to things that matter. Yes, uh, I'm sure we all know how to apply attention to things that don't really matter, and there are other places we could be uh, doing things that are not very uh, useful, or not very relevant. But we come to a place like this because we do uh, appreciate that some things are more relevant than others, and and this is a very I think this is uh, this is a, a kind of a, a continual task for us. I see it as a continual task, even though you might think, oh, Buddhist monks, ideal situation, they've got the Dhamma just laid on for them, it must be wonderfully easy, but nothing's wonderfully easy. Uh, The mind, unless the mind is uh, free from ignorance, of course, then everything's just uh, cool as a cucumber. But up until that point, the mind's very tricky and uh, keeps tripping us up. And even... Even when you find something that works for you in practice, it's not very long before this tricky ego of ours starts imitating it and getting around as if we're still doing the same thing. We're doing a practice, but we're not doing our practice anymore. It's not really the same thing anymore. It's like a, a kind of a false practice. And it's not working. We're not getting the benefit that uh, we were looking for. And so anyway, uh, on an occasion like this, I think it's, it's a good occasion to stop and, and identify some things that, that we feel are relevant. Now, not that we just think are relevant. You know, the books will tell us what we should think about and what we should do and so on and so forth. But tonight we've got another um, several hours, up nearly four hours still before midnight. And and so I'd like to encourage us all to use this time just to ponder together what matters, what's, what's significant in our life. How do we, how do we uh, keep ourselves on track? How do we not get distracted? It's uh, very easy to get distracted by things that don't really matter. So, and also these things that that we can do, like things that can keep bringing us back again. I find they're kind of like little tricks you can have. And, and it's worth, as I say, it's an ongoing project. It's a continual project really to, to cultivate little tricks and to listen to what tricks work for other people. Yeah. Sometimes the monks, we get together and we talk about, you know, what have you been doing, what's working for you, what's not working for you, and we, we learn from each other and so on. One of the good things of having spiritual companions, you can uh, compare notes. And so I thought this evening I could uh, share some of my notes with you, some of the things that have been working, that are working, that I, I think are worth developing. And they're not necessarily a big deal. You know, this is this is a this is one of the things that our deluded mind keeps getting tripped up by. Thinking that the path of practice is is has got to be big things. It's, uh, there's got to be big efforts, big insights uh, to be really relevant, to be really meaningful. But uh, it's my experience that sometimes it doesn't take very much. It just takes the real thing. It's just got to be the real thing. I'm not talking about Coca-Cola. <laughs> I don't know if I have that advert anymore. It was, uh, if it's real, if it's true, then it works. That's the thing. And uh, I've been... 
the last few weeks I've been watching this, um, what's it called? Amaryllis, I think it's called. It's a bulb. Is Marion here this evening? There she is. is it an amaryllis? Yeah, okay. Marion, very thoughtfully every year, just before Christmas, she brings um, a pot plant for every one of the monks and novices and, un- and anagarikas in the monastery uh, for us to keep through Christmas and New Year and keep us company through the winter retreat, which is very nice and we appreciate it. And usually it's a cyclamen. And, but this year uh, there was a couple of amaryllis, amaryllises, yeah? a couple of those bulbs. And uh, so I got one of those, and it's sitting on my windowsill. And the first week, at least, it was sitting there just like this, I confess, rather ugly thing on my windowsill. And I followed the instructions, you know, just a little bit of water, not too much of and and nothing was happening. And there was nothing happening. And I started having this kind of dread that my amaryllis is not going to work. That I'm going to fail at growing my amaryllis, as if somehow it was up to me to grow the amaryllis. Now, that's <laughs> because I couldn't see anything happening. I was thinking this is not working, because I couldn't see it, and I'm failing. You know, well, miracle. Guess what? A week ago, I noticed one morning I went out and I was doing my stretching exercises, and there it was. It's just the little green shoots. And every day, every day, I notice that it's grown some more. And I look at it and I can't see it growing. I really can't see it growing. This thing can't be growing because I can't see it. Now, to tell you, I mean, you think I'm stupid, don't you, because it sounds stupid. But that's, sometimes that's the way our mind works. So it really is how our mind works. Because we can't see something, uh, we, we, we think nothing's happening or we, we doubt it. And so you might remember... Earlier in the year, I, I gave a talk on that, uh, that Dhammapada verse. Was it 122, I think? Um, Do not dismiss the benefit of right action, uh, thinking this will come to nothing. Just as a water barrel is filled drip by drip, so with time the wise become replete with good. And so it doesn't have to be big things. It doesn't have to be big insights. It's just got to be real. It's just got to be the, the real thing. It's just got to be true, that's all. And so like with this, this amaryllis, I, I've, I've contemplated it, and it's, it's kind of teaching me. All I've got to do is just keep it in the sun. Well, there's no sun, but keep it. It's got on a window ledge. It's got some light. And it's near a radiator, but the radiator's turned off, so it's not too hot. And just a little bit of water from time to time. And then it's in its nature to grow. That's it. Because it's in its nature to grow. And this is something I think we can have faith in, that... If we pay the right kind of attention at the right time in the right place in the right way, then that which we're looking for will grow. We can trust in that. It's not. It's not even up to me. You know, this is the thing with the amaryllis. You know, it's not up to me to make this thing grow. How conceited! Isn't that a conceited thought? I've got to make my amaryllis grow. Well, it's the same thing with you know. I've got to make the dhamma grow. I've got to make my practice grow. I've got to make goodness grow. Really, all we need to do is to pay the right kind of attention. In fact, it's even easier. I've discovered it's even easier. I've been reflecting this. It's even easier to cultivate Dhamma than it is to grow an amaryllis. Because really, with, with these, things in our, these, these things in our hearts, like, for instance, I've been reflecting recently on something that is a nice little trick, something that's very helpful, is gratitude. And how do you cultivate gratitude? It's not that complicated, actually. Yeah. If we pay the right kind of attention at the right place at the right time, then, wonderfully, gratitude just grows. That's just it, because it's in its nature. It just does that. And you might have... Uh, some of you have already got the, uh, the Hilltop newsletter for this year. But you've got the email version or the paper version. I don't see anybody nodding their head. So, oh, yeah, okay, so some of you did get it, and some of you might have read the Ajahn's comment. Very good. And you, you, you read about my experience with being liberated from headaches. And, uh, and this has been a very unpleasant thing. I, uh, now that it's all over, I can tell you about it. It's been coming for the last few years, the last two years in particular. 
there's increasing frequency and intensity of headaches and and it really felt like, as I said on the newsletter, the right side of my head had been kicked in, and it was just very unpleasant. And, and the, uh, the acupuncturist told me uh, quite a long time ago, well, what you should do is give up taking sugar, and that includes honey. Well, of course, I didn't want to know about it. just didn't want to know about it. I, I was a Manuka honey addict, and uh, people very generously kept supplying me with Manuka honey, and I would spoon it. <laughs> Uh, I, uh, not just an occasional bit in a cup of tea, I would, I would spoon it out of the pot. And I've been a sugar addict for many years, and so I didn't want to know about it. But eventually, of course, you know, thankfully, the pain got so intense that I thought, well, I better just do what I've been told. And wonderfully, almost immediately, the headache stopped. And I am so grateful. Now, what I noticed that that you know, when you recover from something like that, you recover from some physical pain, or if it's some emotional pain, or whatever, some suffering that has passed away. What you can do is, when there's gratitude there, gladness at what you've got, gladness at what's here, glad for what you've got. When there's that gratitude, natural state wells up, you can just attend to it. You just attend to it. You know how the Buddha uh, encouraged us to cultivate loving kindness? Yeah. Metta or karuna, compassion. He gave these images of, like with loving kindness, you think of a mother with her only child and how the mother's got that radiant, selfless glow on her face and spark in the eyes and, and that, that, that wonderful, selfless, loving caring for the child. Or, and so you use the image to trigger the feeling of selfless caring and then the word pointed out you just pay attention so bring attention to that positive emotion that feeling that sense of well-wishing and just by paying the right kind of attention it grows and this is a wonderful thing that we discover if we can if we can bear this in mind as we as we go forward into the new year that it's it's like it's almost like free energy you know sometimes you you can be feeling sorry for yourself and things are not going so well. And, and if you just direct attention to the good fortune that we have, just direct attention to the good fortune that we have and then let a moment of gladness come up. Now, if we haven't done this beforehand, you know, if we haven't prepared ourselves with this conscious appreciation of our good fortune, which is gratitude, if we haven't prepared ourselves with this, well, then, you know, if you're depressed and you're having a really bad time, well, maybe it doesn't work. So that's why it's a good thing to think about in advance. Yeah. As with loving kindness, with the cultivating compassion, these qualities of heart, to train the heart and mind to develop these skills, yeah, to develop these skills so that we're prepared, so that when things are not going so well, maybe disappointment, dissatisfaction, feeling really dissatisfied, the way things are going and discontented and I mean, probably all of us have seen it in ourselves or seen it in others how even though you can be really fortunate really fortunate you don't have to look very far until you find people less fortunate than you are and yet we can still be complaining and we can still be discontented and so i find it's kind of a little trick it's really worth dwelling on it's a wonderful thing to dwell on this sense of gratitude um, conscious gratitude. I can remember in my own case that this was something that that inspired me tremendously when I first went to Thailand as a rather uh, self-absorbed, self-interested, self-indulgent, uh, recovering freak. I, uh, <laughs> I arrived in Thailand, and here's these people who, who really make an art form out of expressing gratitude. You see, whenever somebody gives something to somebody else, there was a, the gesture of Anjali before they receive it. And I noticed this. I picked up on it very quickly. And, I, and it, it forms a certain sort of a, like a cohesion in the society. It's something very beautiful. It's just like a little, little theater going on all the time, a very beautiful theater, this, this reciprocity, this giving and taking, and this conscious expression of gratitude. And so uh, in my own case, as I say, it was a, a great inspiration. And... And something that I, I felt a real lack of. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know how to, I didn't know how to feel grateful. 
and initially felt felt kind of judgmental about it. But eventually, you know, if we can reflect on these things, and, and, and as I suggest this evening, when we have an experience of some suffering passing, some pain, you know, to, to really, to consciously feel glad, you know, when some pain passes, you know, or like when the winter passes, you know, the winter passes and, and it's a beautiful sunny day and you feel glad. Well, I suggest to really consciously feel glad and, and, and then to feel what that gladness feels like because what that gladness does is it's a kind of a nourishment. Gratitude is a nourishment. And it doesn't just, well, it does create a very positive sense of, of emotional well-being, but it also gives us strength that when we are feeling frustrated, you know, we are feeling disappointed and we are feeling let down, that there is this strength that we've accumulated. You know. And it's worth also thinking, uh, contemplating the consequences of not having it. I discovered this word in the English language that I didn't know about recently, an ingrate. I don't know, does anybody know what ingrate? Nobody seems, well, one person, I, of course, I would expect it, uh, who knows this word ingrate. It is somebody who doesn't have gratitude, and I, I read about it because I was reading one of the uh, traditional Jataka stories, yeah. and in this, uh, one of the Buddha's previous lives, he was a great white elephant, and this is a story that uh, is told to children, but but it's got a very good message in it, and, uh, and traditionally in Thai society, children listen to this story, and it helps instill within them this uh, uh, sense of the value of conscious appreciation. And so in this story, the, uh, the Buddha is a, a great white elephant, and uh, one day he comes across in the forest, he comes across this poor, distraught uh, local hunter. Well, was he a woodchopper? I don't know. Anyway, he was, he was lost in the woods, and he was in a very bad state, and this great white elephant tried very carefully and very skillfully to assure him that he wasn't going to hurt him, and in fact he could guide him out of the woods. And, and so as the story goes, this, this great white elephant, well, eventually took the hunter back to his cave and looked after him and fed him, and then after a few days took him back to the village and, and just asked him, whatever you do, don't tell anybody where I live, and, you know, because you know, I need to have this privacy. And, and so the hunter went back to the village, and he's feeling so pleased with himself. But then one day he, um, he noticed that uh, how, what a good price you could get for ivory. And, uh, and he asked the ivory seller, he says, he says uh, what, what sort of money do you give for ivory from a, uh, a live elephant? And the guy said, well, you give very good money. You give very good money. Actually, just a small piece of ivory, you give very good money. So, so this hunter went back to the forest and uh, you know, found his great white elephant and you know, made some small talk and then said, well, you know, I'm having a really hard time with my family. I really need some money. And what do you think about just giving me just a little bit of your task? And so out of compassion, the great white elephant let him have a little bit of his task. And, uh, well, it wasn't long before this greedy and, and rather unaware uh, hunter decided he needed some more. And so he went back and I won't uh, drag the story out, but you can imagine what happened. This uh, greedy, unaware fellow kept coming and going, coming and going, until the poor elephant, uh, because of his generosity and his kindness, had lost both trunks completely. And the very last, before there was nothing, when there was nothing left, and this, this ungrateful uh, hunter went walking off in the forest, and, and uh, the story uh, reports how the, the earth was so bereaved and so distressed at the ingratitude, or what an ingrate, this fellow was, the earth opened up and swallowed him, which tends to happen always in these Jataka stories. And there was a, uh, a Dewa in the tree standing by at the time, and he said, he said, for an ingrate, even if he's given the whole world, he will not experience satisfaction. And this is uh, a nice story, but also a very good principle, that the reality is that if we don't have gratitude... It doesn't matter what we've got, actually. We, we don't feel satisfied. And that's not just a kind of uh, being moralistic, but rather uh, finding how to, how to trick ourselves out of these habits we have of, of always falling into discontentment, even though we've got so much. You know, we can fall into discontentment. Why? Well, one of the ways we can protect ourselves is by cultivating conscious appreciation or gratitude. 
And these virtues, these qualities that the Buddha highlighted in his teachings over and over again and exemplified in his lives, uh, are suggestions for how to do this, how to, how to protect ourselves from the onslaught of the things that obstruct our path of practice. And so ingratitude keeps tripping us up all the time, dissatisfaction, disappointment, despair. Even though we've got such rich resources, we can get tripped up. And so just as right now it's the winter and there's lots of flu bugs around and lots of sickness and colds and so on, and so if we're sensible, we, we drink lots of freshly squeezed orange juice and lemon juice and maybe occasionally we take a little bit of extra vitamin C, although Ajahn Punya told me today you can get kidney stones if you take too much vitamin C, so shouldn't take too much vitamin C. But uh, whatever we do, we do to boost our physical immune system to protect ourselves from infection. Well, likewise, with these contemplations, wise contemplation, we can protect ourselves from the things that uh, create obstructions in our lives. So gratitude is, is one of the things, and, uh, and as I said, it's uh, over and over again, the, the Buddha pointed to it and praised it. And there's another reference in the scriptures where the, where there's, um, the Buddha was praising Sariputta, his, um, his, his, one of his chief disciples, and, and Sariputta maintained a practice that whatever anybody had given him, any offering, and as you know, as monks and nuns, we, we live on the offerings of the, um, the lay community, and uh, Venerable Sariputta made this practice of always remembering everything that anybody ever offered him. And the Buddha made a special point of, of praising him for this as, a, as a, not just a good thing to do, but a wise thing to do. It's wise to dwell in a heart of gratitude. And, and Offering actually is the next thing that I think is really is really worth pondering on. This principle of offerings, being able to make offerings, and also being conscious of receiving offerings. Referred to that that uh, inspiration that I felt when I immediately arrived in Thailand, and, and ever since, and and we have also in our training here this the gesture of, of paying Anjali when you're receiving offerings. You'll notice at the mealtime here, as the monks pass something down the line before they receive the dish from somebody else, they put their hands on Anjali to acknowledge that they're about to receive something. And, and this conscious offering and receiving, again, is a, uh, a very, very real nourishment for the heart. Yeah. We nourish our bodies and we, we redecorate our, our accommodation and uh, we keep our physical space good. Well, a lot of the work that we do in our spiritual life is, is, is the equivalent inwardly. Yeah. The cultivation of offering, learning how to do it, learning how to make offerings uh, consciously. Now, something that we do ritually when we, like when we come to the shrine. Yeah. It's, uh, in the beginning, perhaps, we don't feel so confident doing it because it's a foreign ritual, but once we learn how to do it, it's been my experience that we, it's a, a, a really good feeling comes from being able to give something consciously. Yeah. Something I've noticed is that, that if we, if we really feel impoverished, we feel like we haven't got anything, we're always taking, always looking for more. And that's something that I've noticed in the monastery, people who come to visit the monastery, stay in the monastery or join the monastery. I suppose in most cases, it's true that uh, most of us come to the monastery because we're looking for something. You know, we go to a spiritual advisor, a spiritual center, whatever, because we feel lacking. But it's been my observation that if practice is really working, if it's really taking root, that very soon you realize that there's always, always looking for more is coming from a place of being inherently inadequate. You know, I'm inherently poor. You know, I'm inherently without. 
And so I've always got to reach out and get more to take in for me. Whereas in the gesture offering, what we're doing is the opposite. We're coming from an assumption that I've got something to give. And at the very least, we can always give our attention. And in giving and offering, the sense of, of inner wealth is cultivated. Yeah. Because every time we every time we offer something, actually it's like, even if it's just our attention or our time, not to mention our material things, every time we offer something, it's almost like we offer a little bit of ourselves away. And when you get a feeling for it, the experience is that, that we actually we actually get a good feeling by giving. Now, now without, if you don't inspect this, we're not mindful of this, and then, then we can get fooled by taking more from me. You know, when I get something on some level, I feel good. I get a certain sense of gratification. But if we look closer at it, this feeling of I get a sense of gratification, you know, is it the same thing as contentment? No, not really. Because if we follow this impulse to gratify my desires, you know, then yes, I get something and then I'm freed momentarily from the irritation of wanting. But what happens next is I want something more. And if we don't inspect this, well, then we just follow it all the time. And, and this is so to learn to consciously offer to train ourselves to consciously offer and to feel what it feels like. And, so, and this, is, this is true in meditation also. You know, just outwardly with our attention and our time and our material things, but also in meditation. You know, when we come to meditate in the beginning, say, I want to get something out of it. And maybe we do get something out of it. But if we, if we keep approaching meditation with trying to get something out of it all the time, there's always a sense of, of struggle, of striving. Whereas if we come back to really offering ourselves into this moment, you know, with so concentrating on my breathing or concentrating on whatever our meditation object is, if we're concentrating with the attitude of trying to get something, then there's a struggle, and it is. Confirming the sense of I'm inadequate, I need more. But if we little by little recognize that struggle, the cause of the struggle, we let go of the cause of the struggle, we, we come back to this, this moment, this. We offer ourselves into this moment with what's happening now, here. We discover contentment. Contentment comes from that. Contentment comes from offering ourselves. And we start to get a whole different feeling, not just for, well, for meditation, but then that transfers into our life, offering ourselves into whatever we're doing, whatever we're doing. And this is, uh, and it's important to notice the difference between, for instance, um, we're concentrating on something and where we're being aware. Now, if we overemphasize concentration, we can become absorbed into what we're doing and blind to what's going on around us. It's like, for instance, the everyday uh, experience of, or, or the example, for instance, of, say, uh, a mother sitting at a, she's sitting at a computer, and the little kid is behind, she's writing a, a letter or something, and, and she's sitting at the computer writing this letter, concentrating on this letter, and trying to get the words right, and the feeling right, it's an important letter, but the child is behind playing with things. Now the mother's aware of the child playing. The mother knows the child's playing, but still concentrated on that at the same time. And then the telephone goes off, and she's aware the telephone's ringing, but she's also aware that she's concentrating on this letter, and she doesn't want to answer the phone right now. So you see what I mean? There can be this concentration. We can offer ourselves mindfully into the moment and do what we're doing fully, without becoming exclusive of what's going on around us. So this conscious offering of ourselves is something really worth cultivating. And, and it does. It, really, it can really effectively, wonderfully counter this habitual tendency coming from the deluded ego of always being inadequate, always needing more, 
it can really counter that. And so instead of being somebody who always has to find more spiritual ability and more spiritual teachings to feel grateful for what we've got and to offer ourselves into life more fully, to, to, to assume the disposition of a servant to life rather than somebody who's on the take. And so, you know, we, uh, every day we, uh, in our chanting, we, we do this chanting, buddha sa ha samida so wa buddho me sa mikisaro. You know, I am the Buddha's servant, the Buddha is my Lord and guide. dhamma sa ha samida so wa dhamho me sa mikisaro. I am the Dhamma's servant, the Dhamma is my Lord and guide. I am the Sangha's servant. The Sangha is my Lord and guide. In the beginning, I had a problem with this word Lord. So, oh God, just got rid of that one. I don't want another one. And that's the last thing I need. But after you get rid of your kind of initial, rather adolescent kind of reactions against these things, you say, well, the word Lord, you know, the word Lord is that which rules over. And I do, I do trust there are overriding principles in this existence. It's not just the chaos that it looks like there is a lot of the time. There are you know, overruling principles. I do trust there is a real reality. There is Dhamma. And the Dhamma, the Dhamma, the reality, actually that's, that's what I want to serve. I want to serve the Dhamma. Instead of, so in the beginning, yes, I want Dhamma, I want to take Dhamma, I go and find a teacher who's going to give me Dhamma, I read books that's going to give me Dhamma. But that always feeling like I need more Dhamma because I'm so inadequate, that's such a limiting perception. Yeah. We can shift it. We can shift it and actually assume the disposition of a servant. You know, we can serve the Dhamma, we can serve the Buddha. And it's something we can do moment by moment. We can cultivate it. A really lovely uh, telephone conversation, was it uh, yesterday? A couple of days ago? Suddenly, out of the blue, I got a phone conversation from Thailand, and it was uh, Ajahn uh, Siripanyo. Now, some of you might know Ajahn Siripanyo. He's, um, he's been living mostly in Thailand for the last 12 years. Uh, contemporary of Ajahn Punyo here. Used to be a university student in uh, Edinburgh and come down here and help us with building this place and uh, very, very fine young monk and uh, spent most of his early years uh, supporting the senior monks in uh, Wat Papong and uh, Wat Nanachat in Thailand and then more recently uh, realizing that uh, he needed to spend some time alone went off to live in Burma and for the last uh, quite extended period of time he's been in Burma and uh, fortunately uh, a remote place that wasn't uh, touched by or disturbed by the, the uh, tragic uh, recent events that were happening there and, and found some very uh, significant benefit in his practice uh, while he was there in uh, Burma. I really appreciated his time there. But he was saying how the, uh, there's a new abbot at Wat Nanachat. Uh, I think his uh, name is uh, Ajahn Kivali, I think is his name, a German monk who's just been appointed as the abbot, and he and Ajahn uh, Suripanyo are good friends from way back. And, and Ajahn Suripanyo was telling me how really he really loved Burma and he really wanted to stay in Burma. And, you know, for his practice, he thought, you know, he really benefited enormously there. A lot of solitude and, and uh, things that he wasn't really getting while he was in Thailand because he's too well known and. And there's always something to do and always duties and obligations and, and uh, wasn't able to get away from it. And so he found his time in Burma very beneficial and part of him really wanted to stay there. But he said that uh, when he got the uh, letter from Ajahn Kivali, his, uh, his Dhamma friend, it touched into the sense that he had of, of how they both really shared their love for the Sangha and how... It takes a lot of effort to run monasteries. It takes a lot of effort to keep this thing alive. And, uh, and when he heard that Ajahn Kivali had been appointed as abbot of Wat Nanachat and really wanted some help because one of their branch monasteries, Wat Daodam, on the border with Burma, a vast tract of forest that they've had to work very hard to protect from the, the logging people and, and the uh, less than impeccable officials, <laughs> 
uh, is under threat, and uh, he's basically finding it a bit much to cope with all these uh, new responsibilities. So would Ajahn Suripanyo mind coming back? And he said he found that his, his love for serving the Sangha was so great that actually he was quite willing. Not, it wasn't a big sacrifice. It wasn't a big deal at all. He was quite willing to let go of what he was doing in Burma, his practicing that he was doing there and finding real benefit. He said he was quite willing, it was easy to let go, and, and he was glad to be going back to serve in this way. So as a suggestion for, as uh, we go in, go into the, uh, the new year, again, the sense of, of uh, always feeling dissatisfied and, and frustrated and as if we need more and it's so easy to get this way because we're being bombarded all the time with suggestions that we, we do need more. Well, we can counter it with this attitude of being somebody who already has so much that we can offer. We don't have to take. We don't need more. We don't need to take more. In fact, we can, we can do with less. We can do with a lot less. And, and if we get a feeling for this, as I said, again, it's a nourishment. It's a joy. It comes from it. But we do need to be conscious of it. Otherwise, we can easily get fooled by what the world tells us and by the way things appear to be. So the next thing that I would suggest as a useful theme for contemplation is, and, uh, and this is one of my favorite, absolutely favorite themes, which worked for me through the year and it's working now and I expect it's going to work through the rest of the, the next year, and that is death. And you're all smiling. That's good. That's because, you know, Buddhists, very good. Now, you know, you say this word death in many situations, everybody goes, oh, my God. How dare he say such a thing? You know, what's he going to talk about? You know, who's been struck down by this disaster? You know, isn't that a funny turn of phrase? Struck down by the demon, or <laughs> struck down by death, as if, as if it shouldn't happen. You know, as if it shouldn't happen. Now, isn't that a curious thing? Now, if there's one thing that's guaranteed after we're born, one thing that's guaranteed, we can't be guaranteed happiness. We can't be guaranteed contentment. We can't be guaranteed food. We can't be guaranteed... I don't think there's anything we can be guaranteed other than suffering and death. <laughs> now, isn't that a good thing to think about? Because that's reality. Huh? Now, the reason it's a good thing to think about, and I mean it's a good thing to think about, I, I really get off on thinking about it, is because when we're not thinking about it or we're pretending it's not true... What's going on is we're lying to ourselves. Now, we know. We know that we're going to die. or we, we can't know, but we've got a very, very good idea. You know, we can know we're going to die as well as we know anything, put it that way. Now, there's a very clever philosopher, Kierkegaard, pointed out that there's these two things for human beings. The amazing experience of, of being alive, that, you know, even the most miserable wretch is probably going to have at least a few moments of, of, of pleasure. Yeah, and, and for the rest of us, we've had a lot, and we're probably going to have, still have a lot more because it's just wonderful at times. I mean, life can be just, just amazing, absolutely amazing, and, and, and really, truly incredible. It's just mysterious how the whole thing can be so amazing and wonderful at times and then at other times can be just so intolerable that you just, it's just unimaginably horrible. And along those lines is, of course, the, uh, the dread that we all have that we're going to die. That it's not going to be here. We're not going to be alive. And that is a really, for the ego, that's a really actually inconvenient thought. It's inconvenient to the point of being dreadful, uh, which is what Kierkegaard pointed out, that we have awe and dread. We have these two things going. And I listened to a very good lecture on this recently by somebody whose name I've forgotten right now. But what the lecture was about was, um, it was about a guy called Ernest Becker, an American, I think he was, a, a cultural anthropologist. And uh, he was presenting this, well, his basic thesis was that, that the intolerance that is around on the planet, the reason that people are so nasty to each other is that we develop these sophisticated strategies called culture, including religion, most of religion, in his opinion. We 
create these sophisticated strategies which protect us against our fear of death. And that's what a lot of the stories, a lot of the myths that we, we have and, and we invest in. We invest a lot of energy in believing in these stories. And I think he's right to, to a large degree. A lot, of the, a lot of religion and a lot of the belief systems, a lot of culture is about basically distracting ourselves and even pretending that we're not going to die. And what he pointed out was that, that that's fine so long as you're with people who agree with your story. But when you meet people who don't agree with your story, then you've got a problem. Because if you tolerate them, then the degree to which you tolerate them, you actually dilute the degree to which you believe in your own story. And then when you're not believing your own story, you're not protected from your anxiety about dying anymore. And so then when you're faced with the anxiety of your death, he hypothesized that what you do is you project and blame that onto them because they threatened you. And then they become evil, they become uh, savages, they become primitive, they become all sorts of things that... You feel threatened by, challenged by, you have to try and convert and so on and so forth. So if they can't convert them, whatever, you, uh, you might even decide to kill them. And that's certainly very regrettable. And I've been uh, noticing the last few days on the news uh, the, uh, the examples of the, the, in East India, the Hindus have been going and burning down Christian churches again. And in, uh, in Malaysia... There's these Christian groups have have uh, two Christian groups are now suing the government because uh, apparently in Bahasa Malay in the Malaysian language the word Allah just means God and uh, and everybody including the Christians have used this word for a very long time but now the government has decreed that only the Muslims can use the word Allah to mean God and so the Christians are suing them. And in Bethlehem, the, uh, the Greek Orthodox, I don't know if you saw that article, the Greek Orthodox were having a battle at the, at the Nativity, the place of the Nativity. They were having a battle with the, the Armenian apostolic priests, kind of beating each other up. And, and then in Indonesia, the, the Malaccan Muslim islanders have decreed a new war against Christians. And it's all over the place. I mean, we can see it everywhere, and it's been that way for a very long time. Well, Ernest Becker's theory is a very good one, I think, actually. That, uh, that is, if we're believing in stories that, 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 that help us avoid the anxiety that comes with the recognition of our pending death, then when our stories are threatened, we get upset and we can behave very, very badly. And uh, what this brings to mind, though, is the situation that, as Buddhists, where the Buddha encouraged us to reflect on death, how useful that is, right? how useful that is. I mean, yes, we, we, we can, we can, it's a realistic possibility. I mean, we don't know when it's going to happen. This is one of the things about death. You don't know when it's going to happen. could happen any time. could happen absolutely any time. I, mean, uh, I was just reflecting today, actually, and I think, wow, I'm really feeling tired. I'm really feeling Really exhausted, actually, and 56 years old. You know, that orangutan in the zoo in Miami died today. She was 55 years old. You know, Lonja, I think her name was. You know, one of the oldest orangutan in, in, in history. I don't know where they found that out from. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, she died 55 years old today. I thought, well, tomorrow, I've got a busy day tomorrow. I'm exhausted today. If I have a cup of coffee at the wrong time tomorrow... It could be it. I could pop my clogs. You know, I could be finished tomorrow. Now, that's a good reflection, actually. I, I, when I thought about it, well, that's very good, because just before that I was feeling a little annoyed about something. You know, I was thinking, God, why didn't that happen? You know, that should have happened. After all these years, of, you know, people should know better. And then I started thinking, well, if I'm going to pop my clogs tomorrow, do I want to be worrying about that? No, I don't. You know, or the same with desire. You know, you can be caught up in desire. Some new, if you're a bloke like me, you might like a new gadget. You know, a friend came to see me the other day, and he told me. Now, I don't want one of these, by the way. I just tell you that I, I really like the idea of these radio-operated helicopters <laughs> that are the latest must-have. 
that a friend came to see me. He told me he got given two, by one by his wife and one by his son. They gave him two helicopters, and and one was an outdoor one, and and his son went outside and played with it and and sent this helicopter with the remote control, you know, and and it's going higher and higher and higher and higher and higher, and, and then he's gonna he's gonna turn it around and and bring it back in again, but actually it went out of range and dropped into the neighbor's property. And then they all went around checking out the neighbours. They didn't know which property it went into and trying to explain to the Indian au pair, you know, where is my helicopter? And, and didn't get the helicopter back. But anyway, he's got, still got the one that's inside. I thought, actually, the one that's inside is probably the nicer one. Can you imagine it's sitting there with a helicopter in my cootie? <laughs> so you see what I get off on. But anyway, I, I, you know, I, I definitely do not want one. But... People, you can get off on these fantasies, and women, I guess, they don't get off on gadgets. They get off on other things that they want. And, and now, if in the middle of having one of these compulsive, ridiculous, excessive desires, you stop and, and you think, well, what if I was going to die tomorrow? Which is quite likely. We we're all getting on. Well, not likely. I'm exaggerating. Quite possible. It's perfectly possible. Any one of us could die tomorrow. It is absolutely possible. You can't deny that, can you? That really is possible. And so would I be sitting dwelling on this desire right now if I knew I was going to die tomorrow? No, no way. So it's a wonderful reflection. It's a really helpful reflection. And it helps us to, uh, to come to terms with this very real sense of, of uh, dread. Yeah? I mean, we're all very brave and diligent Buddhists, and we all smile when I raise the subject. But actually... You know, I think if we're honest, none of us are exactly looking forward to it. You know, I'm not looking forward to it. I think this is amazing. I mean, I just feel so fortunate to be alive. And that's one of the other things, that when you contemplate death, you really appreciate this. You know, contemplating death is, you know, was it Woody Allen who kept spending all this money on going to see a therapist because he was worried about his preoccupation with death? I nearly wrote to him. I actually nearly wrote to Woody Allen and told him, don't. Don't waste your money on therapy. It's a good thing to be preoccupied with death. It helps you enjoy life. You know, when we're avoiding death all the time and pretending that we're not going to die, well, then we've got this, as I said, this inner lie going on. You know, we're pretending that it's not going to happen. So by consciously con- contemplating death, as the Buddha encourages, we come to a realistic uh, relationship with the realistic possibility that we're going to die. And so we don't have to have this anxiety go underground and we don't have to feel so threatened when some of our stories are frustrated or contradicted by other people's stories. Somebody else comes to you and tells you their story about ultimate reality and, you, yeah, that may be. You know, I, mean, I, I find when Buddhists come and tell me, even Buddhists come and tell me they don't believe in rebirth and I believe in rebirth. And yeah, absolutely. It's one reason why I work so hard, you know, because you, you know, you've got to come back and you want to be able to come back into a good situation. So, uh, but other Buddhists come and they tell me they don't believe in rebirth. Oh, well, well, you don't believe in it. Well, you know, it's your choice, but I don't have to get upset about it. Personally, I think they're making a mistake. But you know. Whereas if our death-denying story is something that we hold to so as to avoid the anxiety and the fear of dying, and then somebody comes along and contradicts us, what happens? You know, we can get angry at them very easily. So another really good thing about contemplating death is just the fact that you just you know you come to terms with the the sense that you're not permanent. I can remember the the um, the age I was, the place I was. Thirty six years old I was, and I was standing by an open by a window. And I remember the sudden recognition, dawning recognition that. I'm going to die. And it was such a relief. And I don't know. I mean, I don't know how many people wake up out of the delusion of, 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 uh, of uh, immortality before 36. I don't know if it's likely, really. I think it takes a while before it dawns on you. Now, I guess, well, the Buddha certainly did. I mean, when he was 29, he woke up out of that dream. But it can take a long while before we wake up out of the dream thinking that we're somehow permanent. But when we really recognize and admit to ourselves, we're not going to be here, you know, and, and not that many years, none of us will be here. What an amazing thought. Now, that, that levels things off, and it puts things back in perspective. What I find is that it helps to just to not take ourselves so seriously. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, if we if we think something's permanent, we think something's ultimate. Like if I think that I'm permanent, if I, you know, it's like I'm ultimately important, and I'm not. You know, nothing that's going to die can be ultimately important, can it? And we have this amazing ability mentally to have these concepts of of life and you know, existence and think about things that are relatively important and more important and ultimately important. And something that's going to die and disappear is not ultimately important. And so to really reflect on that, I find what it does is it it helps generate a sense of of um, not being so solid. Not being so solid, not being so substantial. Well, I find I really like the concept of 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 oneself as being permeable. I really like this word permeable. You know, I mean, when somebody throws something at me, you know, like somebody sends me their their disappointment, I've let them down, or 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 insult. Sometimes, you know, I, I mean, I. People are often very nice to me and say nice things to me and appreciate me and 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 I you know I always appreciate that and but occasionally somebody lets me know the opposite and in very 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 clear terms that there's no absolutely no doubt left that they are not pleased with me and they don't find my presence on the planet helpful or, or a compliment and uh, and when those things I remember a few years ago when I'd get those letters. It was harder than it is these days. And one of the things I like to contemplate is just, just let it pass through me. Just let it pass through me. And we can practice letting go of things. Say, well, just let it go. But letting something go it can also be like a, a, a pushing something away. Somebody throws their insult at you or an anger at you or whatever, and, and, and you say, well, just let it go. And, and, and letting go can be a, also can be a denial. Yeah. Letting go can be a refusal to accept something. But then you say, well, if I accept it, then I'm going to become it. I'm going to get caught up in it, the hurt. Somebody, somebody who doesn't have the ability to own their own hurt and anger and rage, whatever what they do, perhaps what we've done ourselves, is we project it out. That's what projection is that's why we hurt each other because we don't have the ability to contain and hold it and and take responsibility for it and so if somebody does that to us and they they toss us something that's painful and so if we accept it in the wrong way well we can get caught up and we can become it you know we can become somebody else's pain somebody else's anger yeah but to contemplate permeability, I find it you know, really just just somebody throws me, just let it pass through me, just let it pass, just pass right through me. Accept, but don't cling. And so I find the contemplation on death helps with this. You know, it helps helps the feeling of being permeable, being not so solid, not so substantial, and and to be more transparent. Remember in, in, in biology, they used to teach us uh, was the process of osmosis. Any school teachers here still teach this stuff? You, know, you, you get the process of, what is it, from a, a lower concentration to a higher concentration through a semi-permeable membrane. Do you remember that? Yeah, I thought it was such a neat concept. It was just so tidy. And for a while, I thought I was going to become a biologist. I just love looking at these things. and. <laughs> And, you know, so the self, we can see the self. If we don't take ourselves so seriously, if we don't hold ourselves too tightly, you know, we become semi-permeable. You don't want to be totally permeable. You can disappear. Yeah. That wouldn't be any good. Yeah. Need some medication. Yeah. But to be semi-permeable, how to not take ourselves so seriously. So death, death contemplation, wonderful thing. It's a good trick. It can undo some of the habits we have of taking ourselves too seriously. And then the last thing I'd like to reflect on this evening is, uh, is, is equally important, and that is, I wonder if you can guess, simplification. Because all of these things, 
even Dhamma teaching, generosity, gratitude, offering, death reflection, concentration, developing the jhanas, developing insight, uh, mundane and super mundane, and understanding the Paticca Samuppada and investigating into a Nietzsche Dukkha Anatta and, and so on and so forth. The whole thing could just become so complicated. Yeah. Buddhism can become complicated. But there isn't what, there isn't what the Buddha was giving us. Earlier in the year, I remember I gave a, a talk about uh, the eight Dhammas that the Buddha taught uh, the first bhikkhuni, the first nun. He, he, she came to the Buddha and said that I said I get asked often, you know, how do you how do you judge what's dhamma and what's not dhamma? Because Buddhism was becoming more popular, and anybody who was a bit senior and had any ability was always approached with questions and and asked for guidance on what is Dhamma and what is not Dhamma. And so the Buddha gave Mahapajapati, the first bhikkhuni, this wonderful teaching, and, and and he listed these things, these eight things. He says, if it accords with this, then it is Dhamma. If it doesn't accord with this, then it's not Dhamma. Dispassion, detachment, dispersal, modesty, contentment, frugality, effort, and solitude. And now when we reflect on those things, I mean, are these things, you know, dispassion, detachment, dispersal, not amassing, modesty, you know, modesty, contentment, you know, not discontent, frugality, making the most of what we've got. You know, you know. Are these things about getting more? The real emphasis on the teachings on, on, on less. You know. If we make something out of these contemplations, we make something out of these teachings, really invest our faith and respect in these teachings, well, then these, these principles take root. And so then we're in a worldly situation and something tempting comes along and, and so you need this, you need more. Then I got a phone call from somebody the other day who was telling me how they, they've been working really hard to develop a business, five years to get it into a good shape, and it's a really, I mean, very successful, very hard work. He and his wife are, very committed to doing this business. And, and just recently, somebody came along and said, I want to increase your business 50%, you know, and I'll invest half a million pounds in it just to get you started. Really tempting. I mean, really tempting because they've been so successful and it's working, they're making money, and, and you know, we could be making twice as much money. Yeah, that's, that's the first thought you would think. Yeah. But this, uh, I'm really pleased to hear this, this guy. He's a very committed to his Buddhist practice and has been for many years. He and his wife talked about it and said, thank you, but no thank you. I thought, great. Because, you know, it's so difficult to say no. If we say no in the right way in the right time for the right reason, then we do effectively keep it simple. Yeah. We keep it simple. And keeping it simple means coming back to this, what is the task? What is the real task we have as human beings? The real task, the great matter, is that we have these habits of ignorance. Reality is reality. This is how it is. It's always like this. It always has been, is now, and ever shall be. Yeah. Like this. What's the problem? We don't see this. Yeah. We, we don't see this as it is. The Buddha saw this as it is. Okay, so it was in India, but it wasn't any different from this. Yeah different time but it was still this and this is what all human beings have been faced with and so all the Buddhist teachings are skillful means, tricks if you like for helping us develop the kind of attention that can pay attention to this so that we're freed from these veils of ignorance now, veils of ignorance are basically the accumulation of the habits of ignoring the reality We've always got this. This is always here. This is all we've got, actually. This is all we've ever had. And this is all we'll ever have. But our habit is to ignore this and go into some virtual reality about how things could be, should be, might be, or shouldn't be. So how are we going to, how are we going to see this as it is? Well, that takes a, a, the real discipline of, of, of just doing one thing at a time. Just being with this. And, and so I, I raise this tonight at the beginning of the new year in a few hours' time as a really useful little trick, a tool, 
something that we can prepare ourselves with, you know, not wait until we you know, have some nice little tasty thing in front of us that's going to distract us yet again and we complicate our lives yet again. You know, another relationship, another property, another whatever. You know, we kind of, how, can, how can we prepare ourselves? Not being an old sad sack who doesn't know how to enjoy anything. I mean, that's certainly not hurt. You know, the world doesn't need any more sad sacks. There's enough of them around. But you know, how to have a heart of conscious appreciation for this so that the capacity we have for seeing through our heedless habits is heightened and we're able to undo what we're doing that makes life into a problem. So life is like this. Life is no problem. Even when life is painful and difficult, life is no problem. Never was a problem. Couldn't be a problem. Life is just life. Life is just so. But we create the problems by doing something that we're not aware of. So how do we become aware of it? Well, I suggest you know, keeping it simple is a very good idea. So um, as you go through the into the new year and through the new year, you might have noticed that these these uh, these little tricks or these themes for contemplation that I that I've offered this evening uh, they make a very nice acronym. I don't know anybody notice uh, gratitude, offering, death, reflection, simplicity. These are the gods that we can believe in. So I've, I've got this contemplation for the next year. These are the gods that I believe in. So I'm very happy to share it with you and I hope it's of some use to you. And thank you very much for your attention.